Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, it's Ben here, how's it going? Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Everything all right? Excellent, that's good to know. Um, This is episode 48 of A Small Voice. Before I continue, March is apparently tripod month. Not tripod as in the thing you put a camera on, although it is appropriate. Tripod as in T-R-Y-P-O-D, which is an initiative by podcasters for podcasters to make more people aware of podcasts. Are you with me? Unlike you, the enlightened few, the majority of people walking around there don't really know what a podcast is or how to hear one if they wanted to. So if you do like this podcast, please tell a friend who you think might like it all about it and make sure they know how to get it. And if you want to put a shout out to your bazillion social media friends and followers, please do so with the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thank you very much. This week, my guest is magnum photographer Mark Power. As a child, Mark discovered his father's home made in larger in the family attic, a contraption consisting of an upturned flower pot, a domestic light bulb and a simple camera lens. His interest in photography probably began at this moment, though he later went to art college to study life drawing and painting instead. After graduating, he travelled for two years around Southeast Asia and Australia, and it was at this point that he began to realise he enjoyed using a camera more than a pencil and decided to become a photographer on his return to England two years later in 1983. He then worked in the editorial and charity markets for nearly 10 years before he began teaching in 1992. This coincided with a shift towards long-term, self-initiated projects, which now sit comfortably alongside a number of large-scale commissions in the industrial sector. For many years, his work has been seen in numerous galleries and museums across the world, and is in several important collections, both public and private, including the Arts Council of England, the British Council, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. To date, Mark has published eight books, The Shipping Forecast in 96, a poetic response to the esoteric language of Delhi Maritime Weathers reports, Superstructure in 2000, a documentation of the construction of London's Millennium Dome, The Treasury Project in 2002, about the restoration of a 19th century historical monument, 26 different endings in 2007, which depicts those landscapes unlucky enough to fall just off the edge of the London A to Z map, which could be said to define the boundaries of the British capital, The Sound of Two Songs 2010, the culmination of his five-year project set in contemporary Poland following her accession to the European Union. Mass 2013, an investigation into the power and wealth of the Polish Catholic Church. Die Mauer ist weg 2014, about chance and choice when confronted accidentally with a major news event, in this case the fall of the Berlin Wall. And Destroying the Laboratory for the Sake of the Experiment 2016, a collaboration with the poet Daniel Cockrell about pre Brexit England. Mark joined Magnum Photos as a nominee in 2002, became a full member in 2007. And meanwhile, in his other life, he is visiting professor of photography at the University of Brighton on the south coast of England, where he lives with his partner Joe, their children Chili and Milligan and their dog Kodak. Uh, I love talking to Mark. It felt like we barely touched the surface, but we talked for a long time. There's a lot of good stuff in this chat, so please enjoy it. Mark Power. Well, we won't mention that you're slightly hungover. Oh, I just did. <laughs> um, well, what are you up to at the moment? Are you working on something? I have a commission in Guernsey that I've just got back from, which is something to do with the Guernsey Photography Festival. 
um, to produce uh, a body of work on the island, uh-huh. um, which is a relatively short, sharp commission. Um, I'll be spending about four to five weeks there altogether over four different trips. Um, so I'm sort of three quarters of the way through that. I'm also continuing the work in America that I started with um, the Postcards from America project. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah, I am aware of that. And, and I don't know if my listeners are, but that, that's a kind of magnum initiative to get a whole bunch of photographers together in a way. Yes, it? yeah, instigated by the photographers themselves, um, exploring new ways of... Um, raising funds to make work but also disseminating that work afterwards so we use a lot so we used a lot of social media um, along the way that's now finished and the work will be shown at pier 24 in san francisco um, next year that's the opening show it'll be a huge show spanning 17 galleries wow um, but the work I, ma- I i began to make during my uh, three trips with the postcards team I've extended and I'm now making, you know, continuing to go back to the States three, four times a year. So I'm, and I want to work over a, a decade. I started in 2012, so I'd quite like to continue to 2021, 22, if I'm still around. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that I can, I, I feel that it would, well, it would become my most substantial body of work that I've made. And uh, of course, it, it begins was in Obama's presidency and 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 now is into the present Trump administration and who knows what will happen next right yeah so you'll probably cover at least three presidents if you carry on or you know maybe four I don't know <laughs> well let's hope let's, so. let's certainly hope it'll, yeah <laughs> certainly hope it will be yeah three at least the idea for America I mean you didn't have any uh, intentions of doing America until the postcards thing because it, it seems to me it's quite interesting that you know sometimes an idea for a personal project comes from something you know that was instigated by magnum or whatever you you worked extensively in poland and again that started off similarly you yes. you you decided to extend it personally mm-hmm. um so what but what's the focus of the american i mean how does one take on america because it's a big it's a big i don't want to say it's a big country but it's one of the big themes and a lot of people are seem to be working on that you know on that project what's your kind of approach going to be yeah a lot of people are working in america um because it's incredibly interesting at the moment of course i mean it always was but um particularly now i think i became interested in the way that land is used about land ownership about how economic and social injustices manifest themselves in the landscape and that sounds a bit woolly i know but um they're basically a series it's basically a series of landscape pictures but they're incredibly detailed and they it's it's all about how i um how i edit and sequence the work in the end i mean often since i started working in poland in fact in 2004 i've adopted a very different way of working where i i'm essentially collecting pictures often not really sure why i'm making certain certain pictures and not others or why i'm um, processing those and not others but um, I've got you know I have vague a series of vague ideas in my head it's a little bit too complicated to 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 talk about succinctly because of course when you work in America it's 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 extraordinarily complicated mm. especially when you're making work in a landscape because you know obviously the pictures contain more than one subject so 
Yeah, so at the moment I'm collecting pictures, I'm making short sequences of work that, that I feel are starting to say something about the way that I see America to a certain extent starting to fall apart. And, um, and I'm spending a lot of time in middle America as well. I, was in, I spent a lot of time in, in the middle of America just in the lead up to Trump's election. Uh, so I wasn't particularly surprised by what happened. You weren't? You, no. you, 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 the signs were there where the you... signs are absolutely there yeah. although it was very rare to see any Trump posters um, people were keeping rather like Brexit they were keeping their beliefs you know under their Quite, hats yeah but, yeah um, I, certainly that you know people were extremely disgruntled with the way things were and um, they recognised a, a very divided society and I, trouble is of course that I don't think the current administration is going to solve that by any means. It's even is going to get worse, clearly. But um, uh, so yeah, I'm. I'm. It's. It's. Uh, it's really. I mean, I love working there as well. I mean, it is one of those uh, last bastions of um, places one can visit where it's still relatively free to be able to make. You know, to, to walk around with your camera and not be accosted every five minutes by a security guard like. Like, I mean, I think Britain is the most difficult country in the Western world, certainly, to work in. I mean, it's just, you know, it's the, the amount of suspicion here is, is you know, uh, uh, weighed upon photographers is, is just ridiculous. Mm. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I've countless times, I walk around with this big camera on a tripod and so forth, and I'm, all, you know, always being stopped in, this, in Britain as if I'm some kind of, you know, potential terrorist, you know, mm. missing the point entirely that surely if I was going to be doing recce photographs of somewhere else I was intending to attack, I wouldn't be using a sort of 19th century equipment. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't make sense. No. But I, I mean, I, I, same thing, you know, I had a very similar experience in, in America, though, actually, you know, but that was probably post 9-11. So I think uh -huh. things were a bit, bit more paranoid. That was a 2004 and uh, yeah, it was very similar. You know, I mean, the, the amount of suspicion and, and paranoia was just off the off the charts. But yes. I think they may have moved on a bit there. I think here, so, definitely. There's kind of places I've been working as well. I'm not. I'm not working in the middle of New York. Or, you mm. know. So, but like you say, with a with a five four camera, mm. and, you know, you, there's no question of you. It's not like you, you're trying to be uh, surreptitious. There's no question of that. You know, you no. are as obvious as you can possibly be. Exactly. Yeah, but um, you know, it's still fascinating to me the parallels between the brexit thing and trump's election win um you know because they're so obvious in a way and your you did a project um which was destroying the laboratory for the sake of the experiment Very good. um i can't believe i got that out without <laughs> without having to no editing necessary and yeah and i guess you know you know that's in a way the american project will fit nicely in with that uh you know with that kind of continuum yes it will except uh, laboratory was a collaboration with a poet, mm. Dan Cockrell. Yeah, um, and the American work isn't. But, no. Um, yeah, certainly there are parallels. Um, should I talk about the? I wanted to laboratory? ask. You, yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about it anyway, and I thought we could start with it because you fit. You finished it in I think 2010, but you didn't publish it till 2016. Was was Brexit the sort of catalyst for you deciding to publish it, or was that more or less coincidental? Well, in 2010, first of all, my Sound of Two Songs book was published, which was my work about Poland. I'd kind of had enough of um, getting involved with book publishing at that, at that moment, because there's a lot of work involved in making a book. And also, it was the time when my wife and 
my kids and I, we moved out to Krakow for mm. um, seven or eight months. And we did homeschooling. And I started a new project, which was eventually published in a book called Mass, which was about the Catholic Church. Um, and I, I suppose the work that I'd made with Dan over a four-year period had kind of run its course. And we just felt that we were starting to repeat ourselves, that we, we couldn't really take the work much further. At the time, we did make, um, because we were working with this fantastic designer, Dominic Brookman, uh, we did make a, a dummy book. We made five copies that was printed on an indigo press, um, which is very similar to the eventual book that was published. We made that, um, and I don't know, I just kind of forgot about it. And I, But it was always niggling me that, um, that you know, we'd, we'd create, we'd made something uh, that I thought was you know quite interesting and I thought there might be an audience for it and um and I like making work about Britain and I like to be known as a photographer that makes work about his own country so what happened was that I self-published uh, my book De Maurist Veg which is a book about the fall of the Berlin Wall I was in Berlin by mm. mistake um, when the wall fell and I published self-published for the first time um, that book, 25 Years to the Day After the Fall of the Wall. And that was tremendously successful. Um, it's sold out to all intents and purposes. I have a few copies, but um, it's quite expensive now. Um, and so I was... Um, and the whole experience of self-publishing was so great, uh, so interesting. And, 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 of course, the thing was successful... Um, and also financially successful if you cut out all the, the middlemen and mm -hmm. just sell direct. You, you know, you can you can actually make a profit out of publishing yeah. a photo book, which I didn't know was possible. Yeah, it's kind of a revolutionary concept, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so I, I felt that um, it was probably the time to self-publish uh, Destroy in the Laboratory. So we went back to the dummy. We, thank goodness we'd made a dummy because we made improvements and it was it was slightly larger than the original one. It was always designed to look like a bit like a notebook that you would put in your pocket. Um, and it is all singing, all dancing. Um, and it came out uh, the middle of last year. Um, and uh, at that point, it was actually that was just about. I, I think it was launched at the Bristol Photo Book Festival, which I believe was something like June the tenth. And the Brexit vote was on my birthday, actually, June 24th. Right. So, although it was the vote on the 23rd, and then I think the result was announced on the 24th. So, it actually was published two weeks before the vote. Right. So, it was quite timely. Very timely, In yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, however, I have to say it was very difficult to get it reviewed. Um, you know, I, I kept banging on about the, you know, the, the links between what happened and the, and our, our work about the mm. lead up to that, albeit that we finished six years before the yeah 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 six years before the vote, but um, I think you you know it's it, photography is very particularly documentary photography is very interesting to look at look back at with hindsight, isn't it? Because you can see you know the 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 grassroots the the, the shoots of of um, of what was about to happen. And again, you know, because uh, there are, again, similarities between that and the work I'm making in America, because I was, to a certain extent, 
working in small town Britain as well. Mm. So um, where, you know, it's people's opinions are somewhat different to the sort of bubble that I exist in in Brighton and you exist in in London, you know, it's a, um, there's a whole swathe of people out there who's, we don't, we never cross paths with unless we go out and find them. Yeah, of course. So, um, so again, you know, I was shocked by Brexit and very upset about it, but it, you know, again, it didn't upset me. Mm-mm. The difference is, of course, that we're stuck with this, whereas the Americans yeah, potentially I mean, only uh, have Trump. Yeah, I think to that's an important point. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so when years. I go over there and they're all moaning about it, and people I, you know, yeah. like the people I mix with, they're all moaning about it. I say, well, it is only temporary. Yeah, yeah exactly. It will, you know, they it will, will come sense, to an end, but, uh, no. one way or another. And and Brexit, we're stuck with for you know, yeah, for a very long time, certainly. And it could lead to all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, like the whole breakup of the European Union could, could, you know, could be. Yeah, I mean, it's unprecedented. No one knows what's going to happen. But I mean, I didn't really introduce it properly, but the the project was really about um, an exploration of what nationalism or the rise of nationalism or or did that, was that something that kind of came, uh, you know, during, during the processes in a way or, you know, a theme that emerged? Yes. I mean, um, yeah, it did kind of begin with that kind of exploration. What was the, what was um, the starting point? I suppose the starting point was um, around 2006 when we began the work. There was so much discussion in the media and from people like Billy Bragg about what Englishness was, you know, what, what made someone English. And it seemed to me it was a completely unanswerable question. And I quite like projects that cannot actually come to any kind of conclusion i like to things that remain open-ended nobody can answer that question what is what is it to be english so um i think you know dan and i were both interested in trying to discover what that might be Mm. and you know as a collaboration was there a certain amount of kind of cross-pollination of ideas did your work influence his poems and vice versa as you went along yes definitely i mean he was always sending me poems um, after a particular trip that we made and I would always, of course, send him, send him photographs. It's important to understand that it was a true collaboration, that we experienced the same things together. So it's not like a... There's a lot of other uh, photography forward slash poetry books out there where the photographer has responded to a poem or the poet has written, a, you know, in response to a photograph or something. But it's not about that. It was about... It was about, if you like, a, well, you know this idea that if you put 40 photographers in one empty room, they'd all come up with 40 different pictures. Yeah. And I think it's, so it's about that kind of hierarchy of seeing, I suppose, where you put both a poet and a photographer, not just a poet, but a specific poet, specific photographer in a certain situation, and they see different things and different things are important. Mm. So, um, and then and then it was a matter of trying to put those two things together but not necessarily have a poem from Slough with a picture from Slough that it could be a poem from Liverpool and a picture from Slough because there were certain resonances between the two that we recognised that were sort of bouncing off each other so in the same way that you would put two pictures together on a page where and and the two of them would resonate with, with each other and improve both in mm-hmm. some way or, or actually give you know give a different meaning to both um we were finding the same things would happen with the words and the pictures. And also, quite early on, we started to um, do things with sound. So, and so Dan would record his poems 
and we'd put them on a kind of loop and then I'd make a slideshow of pictures and then we'd, we'd put them on the internet ran, so that they ran randomly and separately so that uh, the viewer could stop either, either one at any time and then start it again so it could have a, their own interactive... Ex- oh, this sounds yeah, a bit yeah. fancy, but it was actually pretty basic. But the fact is that um, sometimes pictures and words would um, correspond, would juxtapose by a chance... Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...that changed the meaning of both, you know, and that was really exciting and it wasn't something you know you could sit you could sit with pictures and words on a table for the rest of your life and never come up with those 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 chance juxtapositions that we got Uh, but you can't really replicate that in a book of course no no we try to think of all sorts of different ways of putting qr codes in it and all that all this and it just was just running away with itself and we just thought no yeah we have to recognize that a book is a book and you know if i've learned one thing of the 30 plus years i've been doing this is that you know pictures have to be treated in different ways according to where you know it's different on a gallery wall to a book and you know i'm not one I'm not a fan of books that just simply re- replicate an exhibition that you can take home and look at. I mean, I like books to try and do something different with the work. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm thinking about whether, you know, do you think that more photographers should should seek out collaborations? Because it seems to me that, you know, that's something that yeah, you can say can throw up a whole a whole raft of really interesting possibilities that you c- couldn't even imagine if you're just working, you know, on your own stuff. It it does. It, it very much does. And I think um, there's no doubt that we were influenced by each other. But it, not. I think more importantly is something much more fundamental than that, is that you'll recognize this. That we, I mean, we, we talked briefly about this before we turned on the microphones, that um, it's a very solitary activity being a photographer. It is also a solitary activity being a poet, you know, locking yourself away in a room and, you know... Um, so, you know, we, we wander around the world on our own, experiencing things and hoping to communicate what we, what we see in some way or other through our, our pictures. But, you know, it's actually, particularly when you work in your own country, it's really hard, really difficult to um, motivate yourself sometimes to just keep going when things are not going so well. You know, when the weather's wrong or you just feel that you, oh, you've, got other, you've got emails to deal with or whatever, it's just all too easy to get in the car or the, get on the train and drive home again. Yeah. Um, which is why I, I, a lot of people work abroad, I think, is that you have to book a plane ticket and then you're going to somewhere for two weeks and <clears throat> you know that all you're going to do is, is, is work. You're going to make pictures. So that's a little different because it's more difficult to just go home again. But there was there was something about working collaboratively that just Dan and I would set aside a precious time in the diary that we could both make and we would make sure that we turned up mm. and we wouldn't go home again until we were supposed to. Yeah, so you sort of accountability partners or something. Yes, like. and I know that sounds really daft, I suppose, but actually it was really important. It meant that we were... Um, we produced a lot of work because we just had to, in a relatively short uh, number, relatively small number of trips that were never particularly long over a four-year period. So we'd have big gaps between each trip sometimes. But boy, did we make it work when mm. we were together. Yeah. And, then, and then I think the idea of us um, being able to uh, experience what each other was doing as we went you know, I could see the quality of that, that poetry that he was writing. And I just, it, it was just that, 
impetus that I needed to, to make me think this project is really worth continuing with. I mean, we, we're all, st- all starting projects and ditching them after two weeks all the time, you know. Or mm. we have other things that just live under, a bo- under our bed in a box and will never come out, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And with this, I just felt that we were onto something. It was, this was just something that was worth doing and it was very enjoyable as well, you know, to, to have someone to chat with and talk and have a laugh with and talk about the, the adventures of the day. I mean, yeah, it was great. So I, I absolutely would recommend some kind of collaboration. It's important to understand, though, of course, that being a, po- a photographer and a poet working together, there's no kind of um, um, com- competitiveness between us, really. I think, you know, sometimes when two photographers are working yeah. together, it can be, you know... Uh, you know I yeah. mean, that can be a driving force, I suppose, but it can also be quite can be damaging, difficult. Yeah. I think. You can get in each other's way, literally and yes, metaphorically. Because we're both, you know, if, if there's an interesting thing around the corner, then yeah. they're both, you know, <laughs> both of them, are t- and, it, and then it gets an argument about who found <laughs> it first. Whose picture is it, yeah. yeah. So, um, the other thing about that book is that uh, it was aimed at a poetry audience as well as a photography audience and of course a poetry audience is not really used to spending more than 10 pounds on a book right whereas as photographers we know unfortunately that the books we buy is you know 30 40 50 60 pounds you know mm. and sometimes even more and we for some reason or other accept this as being okay and uh, so we had to bring in the the price of the book somewhere between the two so it's i think it's a lot of book for the money it was going to be 25 pounds it was uh, and it was printed in Italy, and then uh, Brexit happened, and then I got the bill, and it went up about fifteen percent or something. So oh, I wow. had to sort of share that with the uh, right, right, with the customer. Yeah, because I remember seeing it. I think I saw it on your site. I think I thought it was listed at twenty-five quid, and I thought that's a really good. It's twenty-six. Now, twenty-six. Okay, it yeah, went up a quid because it went yeah, up yeah. a quid. But no, that seemed, yeah, it did uh, seem like a lot. To, um, it's not a book about trying to raise a lot of money. I mean, uh, I suppose you you could say that I paid for the production of the book through the profits that my Berlin book made. But, of course, that was all spent at Sainsbury's in, in between, <laughs> so I didn't actually have that money anymore. But in theory, yeah, the, the, it, it was the same money, so it sort of generated, it's mm. self-generated. But it took you a while to come to the um, realisation that self-publishing, you know, might be an option because oh, I think you've done eight or something. So it was only this most recent one, the Berlin one, yeah, the last um, two have been self-published. Yeah. So you've essentially you started up your own your own little imprint. I have, um, but you know, anyone listening to this who's thinking about doing it, you know, should be under no illusions about how much work is involved. I mean, I I literally, you know, I wrap every book. I, you know, I sign every book. I wrap it up. I take it to the post office or the cour- you know the courier. I I'm addressing the envelopes. I'm you know maybe yeah. I'm too much of a control freak, but I'm doing absolutely everything because there isn't the the margins to start employing somebody oh, to course. do that you know well i think that's the experience a lot of people are having now because you know it has become very much the kind of default option for a lot of people to to you know raise money with kickstarter and then do it themselves and i think you know if my facebook feed is anything to go by then a lot of people have had that experience now mm. of you know literally taking the books to the post office and yes yes and also um but at least if you've got a chance of actually making some a few quid out of it it's it's not a bad deal in a way yeah and and you know both i mean the berlin book was originally 30 pounds and that was a hell of a lot of book for that much money and uh I uh, and I was able to do that because I needed to be quite strict about the way I dealt with bookshops that wanted to take it, photo, your specialist photo bookshops that wanted to take the book, who would normally expect a forty percent discount. And I just couldn't afford to do that. Mm. 
So, you know, I had to give people, you know, 20, maximum 25%. And a lot of people, they, you know, they didn't like that. But there was only one, there was only one organization that refused to take books at that, at that discount. I mean, they're still making some money out of it. It's just not, you know, it's not as much as they're, they're used to. And I think that because self-published books generally do seem to be more value for money than, than ones that go through the normal processes because there's so, obviously there's so many more people involved that mm. need a, a cut of the pie. So that makes sense. But I thought I could do it because, um, you know, I have a reasonable amount of traffic to my website. I already had a shop in existence, so it was quite easy to... And it was an efficient shop. I mean, it was, you know, it works really well. And the other thing is, of course, is that um, <clears throat> I was able to use, to some extent, Magnum's 3.2 million social media followers, which is, you know, it puts me in an incredibly privileged position. But, you know, just to, as, as an example of that, I think there was one day soon after uh, Destroying the Laboratory came out that... Um, Magnum put it on either I think they tweeted it and put it on Facebook about and, and it was a direct link to my shop you know mm. I couldn't have wanted for any more and with a picture and everything else and um, uh, and and mention of the, its links to Brexit and and so forth and so it went out to 3.2 million people and I sold six copies that day <laughs> so because <laughs> I was waiting at home for you know looking You're at the computer the screen to start going crazy <laughs> And I sold six copies. Yeah. And that, the next day I sold about two, you know, so it's... It's, um, it's humbling, but I think it's very it, uh, instructive yeah. uh, experience. Uh, yeah, that's how tough it is. <laughs> uh, well, look, I, uh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. That we shouldn't get too bogged down in the kind of arcane world of, uh, of photo books, but obviously it's very much part of, uh, you know, what the listeners are interested in. And I think we'll get back to it. I want to ask you about, you know, what some of your favorites are. And that kind of thing. But just to get your sort of origin story, um, you know, there's this story about you discovering your dad's homemade enlarger. Um, was, he, was he a keen photographer or did you just, did you just like building stuff like that? Um, he, when he was in the Merchant Navy doing his national service in the mid-50s, I know he had a Voigtlander camera and um, he made this incredible series of photographs of... Um, he was an engineer... And uh, he made this amazing set of photographs of oil tankers on the horizon. And the horizon was always meticulously straight, mm -hmm. you know, very typical of an engineer, always in the middle. Now, unfortunately, I lent those uh, pictures to a sculpture student for an installation for his degree show, and I never got them back because oh, no. I've thought since, you know, I mean, this is like Be the Beshers, you know, and it was years ahead of them. It was just, right. I mean, it's just mad. I mean, it's so boring. But he had hundreds of these things. So yes, he'd constructed this uh, this uh, enlarger with a upturned um, plant pot and a, an electric light bulb, and, and I think the Voigtlander lens off his camera. And I was I was just in the loft at home when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I think. And I, I said, "Dad, what's this?" And he said, "It's enlarger." So he took it downstairs and he showed me how to. I went out and took some terrible black and white photographs of trees. I remember. And made some prints with him and and it was you know of course it's it's just it's an incredible thing when you first you make your first print and uh, i think i was hooked ever ever since but uh, or from that moment but um i didn't study photography at university at art college I, I was a painting student so um i came to photography seriously a bit a little bit later 
Right. And then I think because you went traveling, didn't you? And then you sort of, I guess, decided maybe at that point that that's what you were going to do and you came came back. But how did you, you know, what was the next move kind of thing? How did, how did you uh, set about actually doing it? Well, yeah, I went traveling for two years. I took a sketchbook. I took a, a very basic camera and I, I, I realized quite quickly that I enjoyed making photographs more than drawing. I, I think at the, at the beginning I thought it was just easier. Yeah. I've learned that it's not, but I, you know, there was, it was attractive. On one level it's easier. Yes. Um, uh, and I came home with all of these undeveloped rolls of film and, um, and I had just a little bit of um, encouragement from a couple of people. I, I, I was given a couple of little ex- exhibitions. I sold a few prints was taken up by the photographer's gallery print room with those pictures. I mean, they were, you know, looking back, you know, they're glorified black and white holiday snaps. You know, you can imagine, you know, mm. Southeast Asia. I mean, it's just, I don't even want to think about it. Um, <laughs> but but it, someone recognised <clears throat> recognize something. Yeah, well, yeah. I suppose so. But I, 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 you know, we all recognise that it, how important it is sometimes for somebody to just give us a little pat on the back and make us think that we're heading in the right direction. And often they don't, they don't do any more than that. They don't necessarily do anything for you to further your career. They just make you feel that maybe you're doing the right thing. And, and that just happened enough times for me. And then um, I did some photographs around the miners' strike in 1984. And I took them to see the picture desk at The Observer. And they seemed to like them. And um, about a week later, I got a call from um, the picture um, editor. Um, asking if I'd like to do a job, which would have been my first job, which was to photograph a beached whale in Becks Hill, just along the coast. And I said, well, I'd love to, but I can't really get there. I haven't got a car. And he just blew up at me. He said, you went to come to see me and you want to work for the Observer and you haven't got a car. Uh, and he slammed the phone down on me. And I, um, so I rang a friend up who had a, a motorbike and uh, I got a lift. And so I rang back the Observer and I said, look, I've got a lift he said, it's, it's too late now. I've given the job to somebody else. And then he calmed down a bit. He said, look, I'll pay your expenses, but that's all. So I got on the back of the boat. We went to Bex Hill. And there was the, the, the whale on the beach. Um, and it was November, I think. And so the sun was quite low in the southern sky. So the sun was behind the whale. And there was a crowd of photographers uh, from the press sort of around this whale thing. And I thought, well, the obvious thing to do is to go in the water and photograph it from, you know, so with the sun on it. So I went in, you know, up to my shoulders <laughs> in November, took these pictures, came out freezing cold, got on the back of the bike and drove up to London, by which time I was like an ice cube. I gave in my, my films. They gave me some hot chocolate, I remember. <laughs> and then I went home again with wet clothes on, on the back of the bike. And um, that was a Saturday, and the next day I went down to the newsagent uh, to see if by any chance the picture had been used and it was on the front page across six columns. Wow. And I thought, well, this is pretty easy, this yeah. photography. You know, this, well, this is all you have so, to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you were the only one to have the, have the foresight to <laughs> well, realise that you, you had to sort of, you know, risk hypothermia by shooting it from that angle. Yes, <laughs> yes, it, yes. But I mean, of course, how wrong I was because it was several years before I ever had anything on the front, on the front page of yeah. anything again. But um, There's always an element of beginner's luck, I think, which... Yeah you know, is, is a real thing. You yes. know, it does, it does exist. <laughs> and after that, I was given lots of um, 
jobs for the city pages for the observer which was basically um you know, sitting around, uh, photographing bank managers sitting at desks and so forth. And I discovered the work of Brian Griffin, and I just thought it was amazing because it was kind of subversive um, corporate photography. And I was trying to be influenced by him, and I just didn't have the talent to be able to be another Brian Griffin, you know. And I just got more and more, um, uh, you know, frustrated by, by this kind of jobs I was getting, being asked to do, bearing in mind that for the previous two years I just bummed around Southeast Asia and Australia yeah. just doing whatever I liked, and suddenly I'm on, in this corporate world where, uh, you know, I was being told what to do and I had to come up with the goods. So I just, I just felt I didn't want to do this anymore. And then I, I got a job, um, I got a, my first proper commission from a, a charity, the Children's Society, which was a, a project that I did over a two-year period, and that kind of changed everything for me. Mm. So those were some of the some of the kind of inflection points. Those those various different, like you say, little breaks and moments of encouragement. And then, like you say, you were in Berlin when the wall went down. Why were you in Berlin? Well, it's it's quite a long story. It's a wonderful story, but it's a it's a long story. Basically, I'd w- made the work um, for the Children's Society, and then continued to make that work um, between eighty five and eighty seven. And then I'd done. Um, I was in the middle of a project about um, homelessness in Brighton, with a, which I was doing with a friend and colleague, Jim Cook, called Beyond the Facade, and I was very, very much pigeonholed as a photographer that. To photograph the underprivileged, if you like, for want of a better word, and I'm not sure you one gets pigeonholed in quite the same way anymore. But in those days, you really certainly did. And if you if you wanted to get out of that, it was quite difficult to sort of claw your way out and be seen as being you know capable of doing anything else. The problem was was that um, in the late '80s, you know, this is the height of Thatcherism. Um, all of the printed media is in the pockets of um, of the advertising industry and uh you know if you're trying to sell your chanel perfume you don't want it to be next to a load of pictures of underprivileged children living in bradford so it was very very difficult to get anything published i was getting the work published in photography magazines which wasn't paying anything so basically to cut a long story short i was something like twenty-five thousand pounds in debt come 1989 because I was just plowing more and more money into work that I believed in but I wasn't getting anything back from anybody um, and um, so I decided uh, that maybe I should give up trying to be a photographer and I, I instead start, um, started to um, train as a carpenter and then I got a phone call um, out of the blue from somebody who used to run one of the photography magazines that had published the work and he asked me to come up to London and um, I thought he was going to give me some work and I was very excited and he said the first thing he said to me was um, I'm not going to give you any work but what I am going to do is I'm going to give you this and he gave me £200 from his own bank account Wow! he said just do something with it just have one last go no pressure then you know yeah yeah but and nothing, I just started- nothing remotely like that could ever happen any, no. anymore you know those kind of stories are just like Someone really did that. I mean, I suppose you get encouragement in different ways, but sorry, sorry I interrupt. I, I, was, um, I just started courting with Jo, who I'm still with, uh, and her family, she had a lot of family in um, East Berlin. So um, I had this idea that I would cross over the border and go and meet her family and see what it was like to be living behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and like everybody else, I was 
kind of watching what was happening in Eastern Europe. There were sort of rumblings going on, but nobody expected quite what happened. So I got, I got on a, a plane um, on November the 9th, 1989, to Berlin, booked into a youth hostel. I was with my friend George, who was a carpenter, and made this kitchen, in fact. And... Um, uh, we booked into the youth hostel. We were both really tired, but um, I'd actually never been to Berlin before George had. And I said, look, let's just go out for a walk. You know, I, I want to go and see Checkpoint Charlie. So we went out. It was really cold. Anyway, we got to Checkpoint Charlie. There was quite a few people milling around. And I said, you know, what's going on? They said, we think the wall might open tonight. So we rushed back to get our stuff from the youth hostel. There was a curfew of, of midnight, so if you weren't back by then, you couldn't, you know, go out. You could You had to stay out. Oh yeah. So, um, uh, but we obviously we took the chance and um, pushed our way to the front, and it was the door right in front of the two of us that opened. You know, incredible luck. Mm. And I was with an agency called Network then, so I had a. Um, I had um, somewhere to be able to send the pictures back and they were sold to the highest bidder while they were still in the air. I got back to the youth hostel in the morning with all these messages from the person running network saying, were you there, were you there, what have you done? I, I, so I, I said, no, don't worry, they're already on a plane on the way back. So I was a good boy and uh, cleared my debts in one wow, night, you wow. know, and I became a photographer again. Amazing. What, what a, like you say, just a piece of incredible yes. luck. Yes, uh, really incredible. And, of course, it wouldn't happen nowadays because, uh, you know, there was no Facebook, there was no, yeah. no Instagram. I mean, it just, wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, it would be all over social media instantly, of course. Of course. Yeah. Live, everything streaming. Yes, everything was happening. It, everything happened much more slowly in those days. Yeah, yeah. Time. And then when I self-published the Berlin book, it was really, really about two things. What happens when you are jettisoned into a major news event by mistake? when you're not a news photographer. I just didn't know what to do. I was completely out of my depth. I didn't know how to deal with this at all. So consequently, I always thought the pictures were not very interesting. You know, mm. I just thought I'd, all I'd done was made some money, but the pictures were crap, you know. Of course, with time passing, they become more interesting because mm. you see the fashions, the haircuts, the cameras and everything, you know. So, and also the style of photography very much of its day as well. And also it was about the, the mistakes I made, you know, like... For a start, not shooting it in colour, which would have been more sensible. Um, but, um, but more importantly, just after two, two days after the Berlin Wall cr uh, opened, they started to bulldoze it down. The world's press had arrived. And what did me and George do? But we went the other way and went through into East Berlin, where there wasn't anybody. You right. know, so everybody had left. So it was like a ghost town and made these very quiet landscape pictures and then I went on a ridiculous search for the grave of Bertolt Brecht, who was a bit of a hero of mine. And just, you know, think about that. I mean, I, if I went to Bert find Bertolt Brecht's grave tomorrow, it would look exactly the same as it did in 1989. You know, I was doing something that was irrelevant when two miles away they the were all dying kind of down. extraordinary news event of <laughs> so the it, 21st it's century. So it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek... Um, uh, attack on myself, I suppose, yeah. as how, how hopeless I was as a photojournalist. Oh, and a kind of recognition of that kind of youthful naivety. I yes. suppose we all made those kind of mistakes. But also in terms of what but you... But actually, not in re but I have to say, that's what makes the book interesting, you know, because if I'd just done it like a proper photojournalist and done a good job and everything, then it, it kind of wouldn't be interesting because there's a lot of books out there of pictures of the yeah. Berlin Wall. But the fact is that my book does... 
accidentally goes somewhere else you know exactly. and 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 it's and it's about the act of photography it's about what happens when you are in a situation like that and you're not expecting it because you know we live in a world where we could any of us could be in a situation just you know in five minutes time that that we're not expecting and how do we react to that mm. and what do we do yeah and in a way it's a kind of precursor to what to the kind of work that you are now more known for in a way the quieter more reflective thing because yes. that you know i realize realize looking at some of that the your um old work and the, and the, the project that you mentioned about the um the underclass or the, or the mm-hmm. unemployed it was um kind of in a kind of traditional black and white magnum kind mm-hmm. of reportage mm-hmm. and then obviously you you moved on from that you know quite almost diame- diametrically opposite um with the kind of big format and the mm. color and so you know how when did that transition happen how did that happen how did you move it seemed almost like around around the turn of the millennium mm. that, that, mm. that things changed in the way that in your style as it were how did you develop the style that you're well, now known for to answer that i need to go back a little bit um after after my career was rescued in berlin I had three years where I worked quite extensively in the media for newspapers and magazines. And I had quite an interesting life, but I just felt that I was falling out of love with photography. I was starting to think about, you know, a new car and a sofa and things. And I was was starting to feel my priorities were wrong. Then in 92, I got this teaching job at Brighton on the new degree course. I was sort of pushed into applying for it. But anyway... um, I got this job and I stood up in front of only first year students because it was just started the course. So I, um, but I would nevertheless, I'd never done any teaching. I was terrified of standing in front of students. But what I started to spout on about was that it was how important it was to have an idea that you felt passionately about that would get you out of bed in the morning and with a spring in your step and, you know, get you out there to, to make work. And, um, and how I couldn't tell the students what that would be because it has to come from their hearts and their heads and I can't give them ideas. And I realised I wasn't actually leading by example. I wasn't doing that myself. So I went back to a tea towel that I bought from the Royal National Lifeboat Institute shop in Great Yarmouth a couple of years before, which showed the sea areas for the shipping forecast. So I started my shipping forecast project then, which was um, square format, black and white. So I did that for four years. Mm until 96 but towards the end of that project because I was involved in teaching because I was having to sort of do a crash course on what was going on in contemporary photography which is clear I didn't know about while I was working in the 80s because otherwise I'd have been more influenced by Martin Parr and Paul Graham and Anna Fox and Paul Reese and all those people Mm. Um, but I wasn't because I didn't really know about them Um, but as a teacher, of course, I had to learn about this. So, I, and I became really interested in, um, you know, German work and American work, and particularly landscape work. It was, and then realised it was all shot in large format with, um, with technical cameras, and 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 I really thought this is this is the kind of work I want to make. So I invested in a five by four camera, uh, and managed to secure a. Well, managed to infiltrate the Millennium Dome and photograph that being constructed from beginning to end. That's another long story. Mm. But, um, so that's when I started using large format, and I used nothing exclusively, nothing else, until about two years ago when I switched to digital. But I have a kind of a digital equivalent. That okay, I use. right. So you have sort of made the transition from yes. film to digital recently. Yes, but it, it was it was really. Um, 
the reason I started making work like that was because I, you know, I'm a pretty obsessive photo book collector, and I think, you know, I was recognizing that the work that I really like to look at, which I think should tell you something about the kind of work that you should be making yourself, um, was was that kind of large format color work. So it was a big transition, but I felt like with the shipping forecast, I'd, there's, I don't know if you've ever worked with a square format, but it's, it's actually quite tricky yeah, to I have not repeat yourself over and over right. again because there's... What was it, like a Hasselblad or something you had? Or it a was a Mamiya 6. Yeah, I had a Mamiya 6. My favourite camera of all time. Mine too. I, it always I, went wrong. Uh, I sold mine to a, a surgeon in Portugal or something uh-huh. on eBay. Um, I don't know how I know he was a surgeon in Portugal, but he was. And he paid a crazy amount of money for it, but I still... Yeah, I mean, it's a great camera. Yeah, it is. It is. But I just felt like I'd taken that as far as I could. I couldn't, you know, I just felt like I was repeating the same same way I've, same photographs all the time, you know. And, yeah. um, and I wanted something different. And I, and, and I just felt instantly that I bought my 5.4 camera that I felt instantly comfortable with it. Right. I, I worked out how to use it very, very quickly. It was just, it was just felt really simple and logical to me. And I love the fact that there was no electronics in it or anything, and I could fix things that went wrong. And um, so, or I could just think about what what was going wrong through just just logic. Yeah, know, yeah, if yeah. If something wasn't working, you could kind of work it out if you understood how the camera worked. And I like, I'm sort of, I quite, I suppose I get that from my dad. You know, mm. I'm sort of interested in mechanical things. Uh, the thing about the shipping forecast, I guess, that strikes me is it's one of those great ideas. You know. Um, and and it's interesting you say it came off a tea towel. Um, I mean, anyone who sort of grows up listening to Radio Four has heard heard this kind of extraordinary, mm. weird, and kind of mysterious thing. I don't know if they have it in other countries or something they do. similar. I guess they, they do. do. It's called Meteo Marine. In, oh, really? In okay. France, I know they have it in Portugal too. Yeah. How how did it? Do you remember that point at which it became? Was it one of those things where you just thought, "I've got to do this. This is this is one of those ideas that I've just got to do." Well, I didn't think it was a very good idea. Actually. Oh, you I didn't? Just, no, I just thought, I'm going to visit all those 31 sea areas. But it's so obviously a good idea. To me, anyway. Yeah, I know. Maybe well, that's I in, mean, in hindsight. I, in hindsight, it was a good idea. I think I only knew, knew it was a good idea when I got loads of people writing to me afterwards saying I was going to do that. <laughs> I was going to do that, yeah. And, and, and I thought, oh, so maybe that was quite a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, believe me, all the way through that project, I had all sorts of dark moments where I thought what am I doing you know bearing in mind the mess I'd got myself into before and I didn't think I could rely on another Berlin wall right I get you know I was always asking myself you know because I was teaching then and I was getting 500 pounds a month and I was basically living on that so I didn't have much money to sort of invest in a project that uh, would take me right across west the coastline of western Europe it was not cheap to do but it was also a huge amount of time. And I kept thinking, what am I doing? I mean, you know, who's going to be interested in a, a set of pictures about a radio program, for goodness mm. sake? And I didn't realise how deeply ingrained in British psyche it was, actually, of a certain generation or s- generations. Mm. So when the book finally came out, the Observer made it um, their book of the week, and it sold out in two weeks. Two thousand copies just wow. went in two weeks. So those first editions are pretty rare. I'm always meeting people who say, "Oh, I bought that book for my dad." You know, I very rarely meet anyone that's actually bought it for themselves. But I'm quite proud of the fact that out there, there's all these dads 
yeah. who have one photography book yeah, on their yeah, shelves yeah, exactly. and it's mine. You because know. because it's something about that it wasn't about the photography for a lot of those people who went out and bought no. one. It was about the way in which the shipping forecast has this kind of, of course, weird of course. Uh, resonance. Well, exactly. We do, we, and so we did two more prints of it and printed 10,000 in the end. They all sold. So, you know, it's quite a rare thing. You know, it's ridiculous, but 10,000 books for your first book. Amazing, yeah. But it's because, of course, I remember Dowie Lewis telling me at the time, you know, that a half-decent photography book would sell 700 copies to other photographers. <laughs> so how I sold 10,000 is very clear that it got out of that photography ghetto uh, it's still a serious book, but it was bought by people who like Radio 4, who like the shipping forecast, who like sailing, who, you know, who, whatever. So it got out, but so, but it didn't, to use an awful phrase, but it, it didn't dumb itself down. So oh. when, when I was trying to find a publisher, uh, you know, for the shipping forecast before I'd finished, incidentally, I went to a, quite a big organisation that still exists, and they said, um, well two things we wouldn't be this is too parochial we wouldn't be able to sell this in america okay now i get that that's fine but they also said um that because i'd made a dummy and it had the same cover of just the picture of the sea with a black sky above it and they said we wouldn't be able to use this on the cover we'd probably have to ask you to go and take a color photograph of a man perhaps in a yellow southwester taking a weather reading and i have never been so depressed in my life as when i left that meeting because i just thought the public are not that stupid they don't have to have this given on a plate they could only see this reaching people or maybe to that publisher 10,000 copies wasn't very many anyway but they could only see it reaching you know getting to people if if they were banged on the head with it. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but then I thought, well, what relevance does that photograph on the cover have to the contents on the inside? None you know, whatsoever. None whatsoever. I mean, people are just going to be disappointed if they like oh, that picture. Yeah, put a colour photograph on the pe- <laughs> cover of a black and white photo book doesn't make any sense. But that, were, yeah, it just sounds like they would. Was it a photo book publisher or was it a mainstream I'd publisher? I'd rather not say. No, okay. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, clearly, you just—I mean, you know—you the proof was in the pudding, as it were. But, but in a way, you kind of hit—you've hit upon a kind of. Uh, well, let's not think of it as a formula because that—that's a kind of redu- reductionist. But what you've done is you had an idea which, like you say, you didn't have to compromise. It's a serious photo book, but it—it ha- it was an idea that had had a resonance beyond the mm. kind of insular little photo book world. So there, there's a good tip, folks: if you can come up with something like that, which kind of ticks both those boxes, then yes, you, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing about that project, which I, I learned a lot from was that the subject matter itself was fairly vague you know it was a place-based project so I would go to um, Finisterre for instance with um, an idea in my head that I built up ma- over many years an imaginary landscape if you like of what Finisterre would actually look like because it wasn't until I saw the tea towel that I re- of course it's obvious but I didn't hadn't realized that these are real geogra- geographical locations so I would arrive in Finisterre with this picture in my head, and of course it was never like that. And if it's not too pretentious, the the best pictures seem to happen in that mo- that moment of clash between what I expected and what I actually saw. So there was a, a looseness that I could sort of photograph anything, except I tried to make it connect to the sea in some way or other, but. Very early on in the project, I realised I didn't have to have the water in every picture. I remember taking a photograph, pointing away. I was on the beach, but I was pointing away from the sea because I was taking a picture of a dog wearing a life jacket. And the dog 
It was a dog. It was a life jacket. It was a stony beach. It was obvious it was by the coast. So, again, you know, simple, but just having, you know, the, <laughs> having uh, the sense to recognize that as, as you know, uh, to li- further loosen me up. Because I didn't, I'm not, I did a book called 26 Different Endings, which was the most conceptually based book I've ever done. And it was by far and away the hardest hardest to photograph because I had to photograph in a very specific way uh, from very specific points and um, you know and I could feel myself turning into Ed Rusher or something and mm. I just thought this is not me you know I'm I'm much better as a roving photographer I, I as a roving photographer who trusts their instincts to be able to make interesting pictures in pretty much any sort of situation um, and then um, and, and I'm quite obsessive about then how i use those pictures mm-hmm. you know yeah. how i sequence them so it gets back to the whole idea of collecting pictures again i've been doing that for years mm. so that very broad thematic idea of allowing me to to photograph pretty much anything i like within a given space is the way i prefer to work yeah i'm not you know, I've got a lot of respect for people like Taryn Simon, but I'm, I'm not someone who sits in an office and decides what to photograph. I just, I can't do that. You just need an idea that will give you a structure or take you yes. to a place and then you yes. shoot. Yeah, and, and I I love that about the shipping forecast. I love the fact that, that, you know, some of it is, yeah, you know, like there's that shot of a guy with a Batman themed tie star trek star trek sorry yeah star trek themed tie well that's in uh, feral you see so there's a good example you know feral i'm thinking everyone's going to be wearing feral jumpers. jumpers and the first thing i see when i get off the ferry is a man in a nylon suit with a star trek tie i mean i just i could almost have gone home I, that's the first picture i took yeah and i could have just I'm packed done. my bags and gone back thank you very much yeah but and 26 endings again I think another great different I, endings uh, just 26 different, different <laughs> we had that discussion sometime with um, Stuart Smith the designer saying well 26 it doesn't need the word different right right by the very fact it's 26 endings they are different and I said well no not necessarily so and I we like, still have this I like discussion. that level of of, <laughs> uh, of analysis that, that it's gone into and everything has to be considered 26 different endings yeah which is um, which is based on the fact obviously the fact that uh, on the A to Z guidebook which is, uh, which is uh, I don't know I think people, everyone knows what an A to Z guidebook I'm just thinking about my imaginary listener in Kansas City who might not know what an A to Z guidebook is but basically where the um, per- parameters of the map are you, you photograph the places that just fell outside of it mm-hmm. which again you know, I think is a, you know, a really neat idea yeah, but but gives you, but you didn't feel you had the same freedom to to shoot anything you wanted for that project. I, did, I had I had the freedom to shoot anything I wanted, but um, it had to be in a certain weather conditions. It had to look as if I'd shot the whole thing in one day, so it looks it looked consistent for a start. You know, it's um, kind of the opposite of some students who shoot everything in one day and try and make it look like they've done it in <laughs> yeah. over three weeks. But um, yeah, I wanted that visual consistency, but also. I was really strict with myself that I was actually on the line of the map, you know, so I couldn't walk over there 200 yards where it was more interesting. I actually made myself walk up and down this line and look for things that at the end of the day, I'm still a photographer that likes making pictures that I like to look at. And um, so I'm trying to, if it makes sense, I'm trying to make photographs. I'm trying to make good pictures, whatever that means. Mm. And, um, And often there wasn't, of course, there's always something to photograph, but it, you know, it, if I say there was, there wasn't really much there in many of these places. Um, I regret saying that, but certainly, you know, in, when I was doing that work, some 
12 years ago you know maybe i'm not quite sophisticated wasn't quite sophisticated as i am now i struggled with it you know that um and also you know driving up to the edge of the a to z and then the sun would come out and i'd have to come home again so mm. it was just a yeah, lot yeah, of wasted yeah. time but I, I what i what i did do in those days was i'd 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 walk up and down the line and look for interesting garages or you know telegraph poles or whatever i thought and, and then on, on the days when the weather was kind to me and it was nice and overcast i could usually hit three or four places at once right I, you know this this thing about sequencing um i wanted to ask you about that because it's this kind of mysterious uh discipline as it were and and um you know do, what do you have any guidelines or rules that you use for yourself or you know what can you what can you tell me about sequencing that might be uh you know useful well for a start i'm always working with real prints on a table mm. i can't i can't do this in keynote or something it's just it's just impossible for me I'm, i mean maybe some people can but I, I have to have physical things to be able to move around when i work with stuart smith um, the designer he always gets prints and puts them on the floor and we stand and we walk around and we spend as long as it takes but then of course the the idea of seeing 50 pictures all together in one place is not how you view a book so then you have to keep sort of bringing them together and looking them through them one by one as if you're turning the pages of a book to see if that that works but i think the the, the the main thing to understand is not to beat yourself up about it, that, that there's no right way of doing it. There's no one correct way of sequencing pictures. Right. There's many ways that right. work. The thing that you have to be aware of is that there'll be times when certain pictures just don't fit, you know, and that'll be really obvious as you turn those pages. You'll just say, that's in the wrong place, or maybe I have to lose this picture. You know, it's that kind of what I would call the Mount Everest picture, which is the sort of picture that you've had to scale Mount Everest in terrible weather conditions with one leg um, to get this picture. Yeah. And, uh, and so you're clinging to it because it was difficult. Right, and, right. And actually nobody cares about that. Yeah, yeah, if not, it doesn't fit, you have to get rid of it. You have to and maybe it, maybe it surfaces again in some other lifetime, mm. some other project, which is starting to happen to me now as time has passed. I'm going back into my archive and reassessing it. But, um, And I think John Gossage, the great bookmaker, said you can only sequence up to six pictures, I think it was, in a row, and then you have to start again. Oh, really? So, so it doesn't have to be a continuum? No, I, don't, I, think, I think that's, Im oh, that's, good uh, to that's know. impossible. So, right. so you have to have breaks, also, I, I recognise that you can't necessarily have a situation where every single picture is loud and shouty and fantastic and big and bold. You know, it's, you have to have the quieter moments. You have to have the pictures in there, which maybe in themselves aren't particularly successful, but they act as kind of um, marker points or punctuation. So it's or not you, if you've got a series of portraits, you could use those as kind of punctuation or indeed the... Um, the empty page, dare I yeah, say. I remember yeah. when the shipping forecast came out, my dear mum, she rang me up and said, oh, thank you so much for the book, but some of the pages, they don't have anything printed on. I think they've made a mistake. <laughs> and I said, no, they're supposed to be blank, you know. Yeah. Which was interesting, actually, that most people out there don't understand the idea of the, outside of the photography world, they don't understand the, the idea of the blank page. No, or indeed the fact that the it pictures doesn't exist. Yeah, or the fact that the pictures might have actually been put in that yeah. in that sequence for a very specific, yes. specific yes. reason. But it's good to know that not every image has to be a 
corker, as it were. You know, I think okay. they all cancel each other out if they if right, you do right. that. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. You see, I'm doing, um, I'm trying to do a book at the moment. Well, I'm trying to sequence a book at the moment, which is loosely called Fashion. Um, because it kind of it is supposed to be a kind of joke because I, I wanted just to have my name and the word fashion on the cover but in fact inside it's all it celebrates kind of celebrates uh, 20 years of, of work that I've made in the construction industry because to fashion something means to make something uh, so there's a case where somebody might pick up a book thinking it was going to be one thing and then be disappointed with what's inside it so I'm actually trying to play with anyway whether or not this happens but I've got you know I've just I've got hundreds of these pictures that made on big construction sites you know over sometimes things like the Millennium Dome or the Treasury or Macallan where I'm working at the moment which are made over several years and then other things which are just outtakes from you know a day job I might have had or something right. and um, and just throwing them all together and trying to sequence them in some way and I have to say that it just looks a bit shouty. I don't really know what the point of it is. You know, it's um, it looks like a portfolio that says I'm really good at this, aren't I? And I, I hate myself for that. Right. But it's just because I, I I can you know I'm, I've been doing that kind of work for twenty years. I'm you know and I so I have amassed a lot of you know fairly good pictures, I suppose. But and you just throw them all together and you think so you know so you can do that well done you pat yourself on the back. So mm. I don't know if it'll ever come to anything, but it's a it's a good example of. Um, of of what happens when you just put too many loud shouty pitches together mm. and also you've you're you're assembling a book from from di- different kind of disparate sources as it were rather than a, it being a kind of deliberate coherent piece of well exactly. maybe that's about part of something yeah. it doesn't it's i don't know what it's about right you know that's the thing um, and but, but it's good but, to know that you're you know someone who's done it as many times as you have is still you know still struggles with those kind of that process as it were and that you still have to work through those yeah those kind of uh decisions and those uh moments of uh questioning what the yes. hell are you doing yes indeed and you know you could say well i should let it go and let somebody else make the edit but i think well i know for a, i'm such a control freak that i you know i i wouldn't like it so it's it's really difficult mm. that that question so whether or not i actually managed to make this work and publish this book i don't know but we'll see mm. I was going to ask you about, um, I think, oh, you know, kind of part, partly continuation on this sequencing question because I know that um, one of your faves from last year was XXYY, the Gregory Halpern book, which is one of those books which is kind of more or less universally mm. lauded. Um, it, I think there's nearly always one book that, that gets the thumbs up, you know, from just about everyone. Mm. And that was the one last year. But um, what was it about that one? Firstly, because it, it was it was made in, a, in as I understand it in and around San Bernardino in the Inland Empire of California, which is a place I actually worked in postcards, and I know how tricky it is to photograph in that desert. There was something about the aesthetic that he was using, which was something that I'd never seen before. They were kind of messy and crude, but at the same time, they were exquisite. And there was those those two things were fighting each other all the time, you know, sort of awkwardly out of focus in bits and part, you know. But it, but it it kind of worked, and 
you know, the fact that he did it over and over made you realise, of course, that it's not a mistake. This is absolutely intentional. It's a kind of anti-aesthetic, I suppose, of, of, of that sort of large format work that we see so much of. I think Chris Killip actually wrote something about that, that it was somebody who was actually seeing the desert afresh. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, it's a criticism of the kind of work that I was making, which I, I'm really happy to take on board, you know, and it makes me think. Uh so in the end, I think it just worked perfectly as a book. I think the, also the sequencing really, really confused me. I just thought, this is not what, you know, you'd have all these portraits one after the other, and you think, this is all wrong. But there was something about it I just kept going back to. It was sort of aggravating me in some way. But in the end, I just thought, this is absolutely brilliant. It couldn't be in any other way. Mm. So it being all wrong was, well, it was, turned into it being um, all right. Wrong basically. isn't isn't probably the right word no, it but not just, what you expected. it wasn't what i was expecting it wasn't comfortable i suppose it wasn't easy you know that there are certain recognized ways i suppose of putting work together in a book and it, it seemed to break a lot of of those um rules mm. which of course is what makes photography any art form interesting isn't it we can't the, just the breaking of rules yeah. yeah how do you know when a project is finished it's probably a kind of age-old question but i i still uh wonder if there's an answer um i either feel that the that i'm getting starting to repeat myself that i've run out of things to say or i start to get a bit bored hmm. and um so i will impose a deadline upon myself so i'll try and look for an exhibition or i'll try and say i'm going to publish a book or try and you know whatever so that i i make make a deadline where the work has to be finished otherwise i know that certain projects can just go on and on and on and i know that there are photographers out there that work on this have been working on three or four projects for 20 years you know and and and, and that's fantastic but i just can't i like to be able to sort of put things to bed so if you take the shipping forecast, I guess I could still be working on that now if I hadn't yeah. decided to go and find uh, for myself, the, uh, you know, exhibition book, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Well, that had its own, in a way, its own sort of structure because you, once you went to all the thir yeah. 31 places or whatever. But I wasn't happy entirely with all of those So, yeah, you could have kept going back. I could have back. kept going, yeah. you know. But, but on the other hand, you know, Sea Area White, which is, which I live in because uh, Brighton's on the coast, um, for those people in Kansas, um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that in a way was the toughest of all because my expectations, if I could just walk down to the beach and, you know, make new pictures every day if I wanted to, mm. made, my, made my expectations of what I would produce impossibly high. And so all I could be was disappointed, you know, whereas another sea area which I, I couldn't get to in any other way except flying over it in a Met Office research plane we flew at 50 feet above the sea and we were over the, the sea in that sea area for 20 minutes. They took me specially to do it. Yeah. So I'm photographing the sea from 50 feet in a, through a plane window and I really love that picture because I couldn't do anything else. Hmm. So sometimes, you know, the fact that you, that you have so many restrictions that you just you, you're more willing to accept what you have. It's failings, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So I... So what I'm getting at here is perhaps if I'd continued with that project for another four years, it might not necessarily have got any better. It just would have been different. Right. 
the next kind of obvious question is like how do you know if anything's any good i mean in terms of how you know when you're talking dealing with your students um you know there's a whole thing that one must um you know carry on but how do you know if you're just deluded about whether your pictures are any good you know is there a way to I mean, it seems almost impossible to know yeah whether you should just carry on with something or whether it's just not happening yeah i mean the problem is of course that we all have is that we get too close to what we're doing and we can't see it anymore yeah and, yeah exactly uh, so which is why i think it's really important to share that work with with others um you know, I've, I've taken to Instagram about just over a year ago. I was a bit late, but um, and I use Instagram to post brand new pictures that I've, I've done. You know, like my American work, for instance, or in Guernsey, I was just pu- I was publishing on Instagram. Publishing is that the right word? Mm. I was putting on Instagram so. um, uh, um, pictures I'd shot that day. You know, that I was happy with. You know, immediately happy with. You know, uh, which is often not good but um i try not to be obsessed by the number of likes we you know but it's sort of kind of interesting isn't it when um yeah yeah. certain pictures are you know seem to resonate more with other people than others and and i will i will absolutely disagree most of the time saying but what's wrong with this picture it's only got 200 likes and this is much better than this one that's Mm. got a thousand you know but yeah uh, but uh, and i mustn't get you know be a bad i'm sure people do it you know edit books by instagram likes well that would be a very dangerous (laughs) that would be a very dangerous uh, policy it is kind it's kind it is on that it's about what you're talking about how do i know if something's any good Mm. and um uh so i'm i test things out a little bit i suppose and uh but um, and you can ask, obviously, you know, you, you know, you can ask friends and people whose opinions you respect. But then, you know, if one person says one thing and another person says the opposite, you know, you know, better off in a way by that. By no, you're not. Process. You're not. And of course, you can't please everybody, and I wouldn't want to. And so, there's always going to be loads of people out there that just think what you're doing is a waste of time, and it's just. And there'll be a few people that might like it. That doesn't. So it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't. It's an unanswerable question, isn't it? I mean, is Gregory Halpern's book any good? You know, is it good? I mean, we, you know, we think it is, but yeah. but you know, most think, people probably wouldn't. So, yeah. so you know, I, I, well, it's, I'm not. Yeah, the thing is, to... I, I've I've understood over the years that I'm not trying to change the world with what I do. I recognise that um, my audience, if I if, if there is one, is is relatively small, and. Um, if I if I if I'm relatively happy with what what I've produced, what I'm doing, then I, I think that that's enough for me. And whether or not it's any good or not, it's not something that really concerns me too much because I just I don't think we can go there with that. I don't I think, you know, and also things change with time. I mean, work but, becomes different. It, it's read differently. It becomes mm. more often more important. But I think if yeah, I think once you get to a certain point, you've been doing it for a certain amount of time, and you've made a certain number of photo books and you've sold a certain number you can pre- you can be pretty you can be reasonably confident that at least you've got a, a decent size o- audience you know who are going to like your stuff and what we're going but i'm aware that you know as you get older it it becomes to a certain extent you know more difficult to i feel like i'm making work as good as i've ever made but you know that's what photographers always say and you know mm. older photographers and i'm not that old yet but uh, I remember Joseph Kudelka famously saying that all photographers make their best work before their 40th birthday. But he's somebody, you know, as an example of still making great work in his late 70s, you know. So 
it can be done. I hope we're not yeah, all Fidelco, but um, you know, I'm 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 aware of that. I don't want to be deluded and thinking that oh, what I'm doing is fantastic. You know, when it's clearly not. I just hope somebody tells me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. Uh, what, you know, what's the advice that you find yourself giving your students most often? Uh, well, I'm not teaching so much anymore. I actually left uh, University of Brighton to all intents and purposes. I've just got a very small contract there now. Okay, you sort of scaled it back. Yeah, was I, I thought it was it was it was time at the age of 57 to sort of start thinking. Time is just the most precious thing that I have, apart from my my loved ones, of course. Mm. And I'd been teaching for 25 years, and I thought, you know, I. I also, I was down to a day a week anyway, but it was every Wednesday, and it was quite, it was kind of tricky to mm. to operate with that that in place all the time. So now I'm down to a very very small contract where I do a, a six days pretty much in a, in a row. Um, but uh, your question, what do you say to the students? Well, I I don't have a lot of time for laziness. I, I mean, it really winds me up when people, you know, when students don't. Thankfully, at Brighton, we've we've got usually pretty good students, so it's not. So work. You know, I think, think it's a privilege to be at an art school and to and and to be able to be self, relatively self indulgent for three years and to build a portfolio. That you know, you as we all know, there's no work out there, so everyone has to fend for themselves when you leave. And it's not about trying to get what what we can get away with here and how little work we can get away with, because frankly, we don't care if you if you don't want to work, that's up to you. But for the so I get I get aggravated by that. Um, but when when students are and luckily, as I say, the majority of ours are. Um, when students are committed, it, there's, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I feel that um, I've learned so much. And I've been in such a privileged position to have so many extraordinary young mm. uh, photographers, you know, emerging right in front of my eyes. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, will, I, I try to teach in an, in an encouraging way. Um, because I think people should know that if you are determined enough and if, you know, that, that, and talent, of course, plays a role in this, but determination is so important. And there is still room out there for people to make a success of this. And um, uh, it's just that, you know, we, we live in a different kind of world now. When, when I started, there were, you know, if you went to a party and you said you were a photographer people were really interested and it sounded really glamorous yeah know? yeah but now it just people it's just like, who is see people <laughs> yawning <laughs> yeah really you know so it's changed a lot mm. and um, with the demise of magazines and so forth people have to find new ways of, yeah. of disseminating their work it's all very well putting it on the internet but that's not going to pay the bills and you know so so everybody's a, a bit of a loss as to know what the future is for all of these young photographers, what they're actually going to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm sure you're the same. I can't imagine not doing this. You know, I, I, I th it, it is said, isn't it, that, you know, the happiest people are the people that make things. And um, this is what I make. And it's, it, it makes me happy. I mean, there's no, there's nothing better, is there, than, you know, Perhaps getting up really early in the morning, doing a couple of hours work and then sitting down to breakfast in a cafe, knowing that you've done something really good and you're really excited by it. I mean, it's just the best feeling. So, you know, and I, I, I want to share that enthusiasm. I want, I, that's why I, I loved teaching. I got, I got 
very disillusioned by all the sort of the way education has changed and all the management and the sheer numbers of students but at, at the end of the day you know sitting down with interested students committed students was a fantastic privilege and uh, I have no regrets at all and and you're as so you're as enthusiastic as you've ever been then I think so I think so I'm, I'm worried I mean of course like every teacher have those days when we think what am I doing this for you know because these poor people I mean what are they going to do you know that's and then and then the next day I feel yes but in terms of your own practice your you know your own motivation for 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 carrying on you you know clearly you're you still love doing it yes yes I do I do and um as I say I can't imagine not doing it it there'd be a big gap in my life I have no intention of retiring I don't have any kind of pension anyway but Mm. I certainly you know it's not ever crossed across my mind that I wouldn't Unless, of course, I start making terrible work, and you must tell me. Um, but uh, and then maybe I just move on to you know looking back on my archive and making sense of that. But um, no, I, I you know my my photo book collection is really important to me as a, as a um, well. Sometimes I just think, why have I got all these books? I don't need all this stuff. I just want to live out of a rucksack. But most of the time, I I do love closing the door of my office and picking up a book and sitting down and just looking at it carefully mm. and um and i'm well aware there could be you know years pass between looking at you know before i look at a book again you know but um some sometimes i think of myself as a as a cook with a lot of cookbooks that's um trying to sort of think of an original dinner to make out of all of these different books that i have i'm trying to I'm borrowing from all sorts of different people, including Gregory Halpern, um, uh, and trying to f- trying to find a, a way of working which is, you know, mine. And I think that's that's the that's the toughest thing, isn't it, for young photographers, is to is to find their own voice, which is kind of I wouldn't say unique because I wouldn't be so bold as to say my my voice is unique, but you know where where your work is in, to some extent recognisable. Mm. what it is yeah yeah and, that's the challenge isn't and it? it and it's not something that you can do in three years at an art college it's um it takes a long time um but sometimes i wish people were more open about the fact that they are um you know being high heavily influenced by other people and i'll always say you know what's wrong with trying to copy walker evans for instance because you can't copy walker evans because you don't live in 1930s america so how could you mm. it's a great thing about documentary of course is that you can you can be influenced aesthetically by something which is a bit surface of course but the world around us changes every day so we can never make the same pictures but there's nothing wrong with thinking, oh, look, I'm in an elevator and there's, an, there's, there's, there's a woman there that looks a bit like that woman in the Robert Frank picture of the woman in the elevator. Let's take the picture in the same way that Robert Frank did it. And, you know, that's great. You know, mm, that's mm. brilliant. Yeah. Well, you know, I could talk all day personally. I'm, I'm going to, I want to be respectful of your time and, and I think we should stop, Mark, but uh, it's been a great pleasure and uh, thank you so much for doing it it's been, uh, i really enjoyed it well it's been a pleasure as well thank you for coming down not at all thank you